We are um, uh, in the middle of a series on holiness, and it's a series that pretty much every, every nation church around the world is going through, and I'm finding it incredibly invigorating to revisit this idea of holiness, to understand what the Bible really teaches about it. We're on today's topic. It's called Holiness Restored. And before we jump into the passage for today, I just want to give a bit of a recap of what we've been talking about so far. What holiness means is to cut or to separate. That's what the word literally means. It means to cut, to divide. So the grand question is, what if God is holy, what is he separating or dividing? Well, he's always separating good from evil. He's always cutting away what's evil, undermines relationship, dishonors one another and him, and he's always trying to promote what builds relationship and builds connection. We are, we've been saying this same quote pretty much every week by Dr. Nick Cash, and it says that holiness is relationship in its purest form. So holiness is to be thought of as a relational word, that to have a holy relationship with God is to have a pure relationship, unadulterated, not polluted by any sin or anything that would divide or cause harm. It's the, it's the, it's the perfect kind of relationship, and this can only be experienced ultimately in Jesus Christ. Now, we have two problems with that. The first is outlined in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14. It says, without holiness, no one will see the Lord. So we, we, our hearts might long to be in, ex, in, in a holy relationship with God and experience that kind of love, but imperfect people, impure people, can't have a relationship with a pure God. Now, you might think, okay, well, that's just mean of him. Like, he should just be more loving and generous and invite everybody in and, and, and uh, kind of make it his problem. But I think maybe a way to understand this is I think about, and I'm, I'm not trying to diss this particular age group, but it's just the example that came into my mind. I imagine the idea of, of you know, young love, kind of teenage love. And if you've ever had a teenage crush, crush it's the epitome of what love is really about. And it lasts for a day or two, you know. But, uh, but it's this idea that, um, um, you know, you imagine a teenager, you know, they go, you know, I am just, I'm so in love. And I think it's genuine. I don't think anybody's making something up or I think it's a true thing. But the challenge is that even though somebody might really want to be in love and really be committed to this person, sometimes uh, their immaturity doesn't allow the relationship to flourish. And so, uh, you know, we, we hear all kinds of words about dysfunctional relationships like codependent and enmeshed and people are gaslighting and doing all kinds of things like that. Well, that's what's going on there is that people are wanting to engage in a relationship, but they're unable to. And this actually characterizes us. We might want to have the perfect, most ultimate relationship with Jesus, but there's impurity in us, immaturity in us, unholiness in us that doesn't allow us to enjoy that kind of relationship. So it's not like God's saying, no, you can't have it. We aren't able to participate in it because of our unholiness. But it gets worse. Romans 3.10 says, there is no one righteous, not even one. This isn't just the condition of a few or young people or something. It's all of our problem that we actually don't have the capacity 
to engage in that kind of relationship with God. We're all unholy. So what we're looking at today then is what is God's response to that? How does it Jesus respond to this uh, terrifying predicament that what our heart needs more than anything else is to connect with God, yet our unholiness prevents that from happening? Well, the passage that's been giving us, given us to discuss is Hebrews chapter 7, verses 22 to 27. This is what it says. Jesus has become the guarantor of a better covenant. So here we are, this idea of a better relationship. And there's something about what Jesus has done that allows us to enter into this ultimate relationship that all of us need to experience. Now, there have been many of those priests since death prevented them from continuing in office. So we're kind of picking up a conversation. But there's this idea that in the Old Testament, there was priests were always in the temple performing these sacrifices, and there's a whole lineage of them. But because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. He's not like all those other priests who, who die and then somebody else uh, comes up. His priesthood is permanent, enduring forever. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Such a high priest truly meets our need, one who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Unlike the other priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sin and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. So what we see in this passage is that Jesus is distinguishing himself from two things that were central to the Old Testament. The Old Testament priesthood and the sacrifices that were offered in the temple. The, question, the first question that we want to examine is, why couldn't the priests of the Old Covenant, this old relationship in the Old Testament, why couldn't the priests and sacrifices make people holy? What was the problem with that idea? Let's look first at the priests. Now, what a priest is, is a mediator. A priest is somebody who stands in the gap between a group of people and whatever heavenly being they're trying to represent, and they're a mediator between the two. Now, what this immediately means is that even though they're trying to help us connect to God, they're actually creating a gap that you have to somehow go through them in order to get to God. Uh, uh, We see this happen most clearly with Moses in the Sinai Desert. So God sets free a people for himself. He wants to engage in a relationship with them. He says, come to the holy mountain, Mount Sinai, and I'm going to present myself to you. And the people are freaked out, and they say, we don't want to see you face to face. We're going to die. If we're in the presence of that amount of holiness, there's no way that we can survive. So they say, Moses, you go up for us, and uh, come back down and tell us what he said, and we'll do whatever you say, but just please don't have us meet God face to face. It's too horrifying. Moses then becomes a gap that they now don't have a direct relationship with God, they have to go through Moses. And they actually prefer that. 
Um, somebody told me once, so those of you who are Filipino can confirm if this is true or not, but somebody told me once, Filipino, said that, uh, that this is actually familiar in our culture. Maybe it comes from our Catholic background, but if we have somebody that we have a difficulty with, especially somebody who's in leadership, it's maybe disrespectful and, uh, uh, to actually go directly to them with a problem that we have. And so what we do is we talk to somebody who then they're going to talk to them, and hopefully that'll all work itself out, if you're familiar with that. And so it's considered to be a sign of respect, but what ends up happening is that mediator actually becomes a gap that prohibits us being able to have a direct relationship. Now, how does this work for us today? I think uh, even if we live in a secular society or even if we describe ourselves as Christians, we still practice this idea of priests mediating for us. They look different, of course. One of the ways that I think this looks is that uh, instead of reading our Bible, I don't know if you've ever tried to read this thing, it's a little tricky sometimes. And there's people in there who we don't know what, you know, why has God put that story in there and what does this exactly mean? So we go, I know. What I'm going to do is I'm going to download an app and then every morning I'm going to listen to somebody explain the Bible. And now uh, I'm getting help with my relationship with God because somebody is going to be a mediator for me. They're going to break it down so that I don't have to do the awkward work of trying to go directly to God. They're going to, you know, if this is the bread of life, they're going to chew it a little and make it a little bit more palatable and easier to consume. Now, I'm not saying that you shouldn't have, you know, help with your devotions, but leaders and speakers and podcasts uh, they can all be used as mediators and they actually create a gap between us and God. It's possible for that to be true. This is just a lot of work. So I'll go to church faithfully, you know, once every two months and I'll listen to what the preacher says or I'll go to my uh, D group and we'll have a discussion there. They always help me understand things. But the idea of me going directly to God is actually quite an intimidating idea. And I'm not sure that I feel very confident doing that. And so we sign up for priests to be in our life. This is in contrast to Hebrews chapter 8, verses 11 and 12. It says, No longer will they say to one another, Know the Lord, because they will all know me, for I will forgive their wickedness. This is a shocking idea. Uh, You don't need a priest anymore. You can actually know God directly because Jesus has forgiven our sins. There's now no barrier. And so we're able to actually come in, have a relationship with God. We don't, our sin is no longer a barrier. We don't have to go through priests anymore. We can go directly to him. Why? Well, the mediator is God. Before, the priests were human beings. So they were a gap. But Jesus is God. So he is both the mediator and the one being us being mediated to. So there's now no separation. There needs to be no separation 
between us and God. Now, I don't know how, about you, how you feel about that, but that's profound, that we get direct access to the living God. No need for human mediation. Now, of course, people can help us in our relationship with God, but they don't act as priests. So, uh, priests can't make us holy. They create gaps. Jesus is the eternal priest, and because he's God, there's now no separation between us and God, and we can now have a direct relationship with him. What about sacrifices? What, what is the role of sacrifices in the Old Testament? Well, what they're for is to deal with our guilt. Everybody knows, and I hope that this is true for you, we just read some verses about it, that everybody knows that we're sinful and our unholiness and immaturity and selfish ambition and all the other things that are ugly in us prohibit us from being able to have a meaningful relationship with God. So something needs to be done for our sin to be dealt with, for our guilt to be removed, so that we can enter into a relationship with God. What's interesting, even when the Old Testament uh, is setting up this sacrificial system, this is what's said in Hebrews 10. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. They knew that even in the Old Testament, there's no way that a cow or a lamb is going to take away my sin so I can engage with God. What they knew is that this is actually a representation of what we need from God to somehow, for him to absorb our sin, to take away our sin. It was a foreshadowing. It was an anticipation of Christ coming. Dealing with our sin to such a degree that it would no longer be a barrier between us and God. So, flash forward to today, how do we, in a modern society, how do we deal with our guilt? What does our sacrificial system look like? Well, I think we deal with guilt in at least three ways, and you can say it quickly. The first is through good works. I like what Ernie Kruger said, where he was a, uh, you know, he's this professional rugby player and good-looking and a superstar and all that, and and uh, so he would do things for one week that was not good. And then the next week, he would try to offset that by having a good week. And the hope was that if, if he can be good enough this week, that God will say, well, fair's fair. I mean, you were bad, but now you've been better, so okay, I'll let you go. And it's this idea that we could actually pay for our own sins by being good enough. That's been proven to be, uh, of course, impossible. Something else that we do is we blame. We think, okay, uh, if I'm guilty, that means that I'm going to be separated from God and from others. So what I'll do is I'll just minimize the cost of my sinfulness. And I'll say, you know what? I, I, I know I did some bad things, but I really didn't mean to. And if you knew my upbringing, it would make sense to you. And besides that, it was their fault. They made me do it. And we just, we just blame and we hope that if our blame makes us more innocent, so then there's less of a gap between us and God. It's a way to kind of uh, deal with our guilt. And the last way would be distractions. 
where we just pretend it didn't happen and we just try to have a nice life and go, you know what, let's just let bygones be bygones and uh, let's just, you know, let's just get along together. What do you say? Now, I imagine these three options in the area of adultery. What if somebody commits adultery and they say to their spouse, you know, yeah, I committed adultery, but I did buy you flowers last week. Hey, so maybe if I buy a few more bouquets of flowers, we'll all be good. What do you think? Does that work that way? I don't think it works that way. How about blame? Well, I was seduced. And surely that can't be my fault if I was seduced. I mean, you know, a man has needs or whatever dumb thing they'll say, but they... It's, it's blame. Do you, think, do you think a spouse blaming someone else is going to help reconcile their relationship? And how about distractions? Why don't we just go out for dinner, have a fresh start? What do you say? On me. You know, there's just, like, none of that deals with the guilt, does it? it, it it's impossible for those kinds of offerings to get rid of the eternal gap between us and God. So, uh, Jesus' forgiveness makes priests or mediators and sacrifices, which is kind of the way that we manage guilt, unnecessary because he's the perfect sacrifice once for all reconciling us to God. We no longer have to blame. We no longer have to participate in distractions. We no longer have to live uh, with a ledger of good and bad works. All that's removed. We don't have to go through other people. All of that has been dealt with through the forgiveness of the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, this is just remarkable. There's no other adequate solution to be united with God. Nothing even comes remotely close to what Jesus Christ did on the cross and in his resurrection. So, here's the the question that remains. How does the priestly, sacrificial work of Jesus make us holy? How do we, that's what he did, how do we receive that or, or experience that Uh, that freedom and life and forgiveness. How does it work? Now, what did we say that holiness is? Holiness is relationship in its purest form. That's what holiness is. Therefore, uh, we become pure by being purely loved. What if what makes us pure is the extravagant, generous, perfect, holy, strong love of God? And his purity cleanses us. A relationship with God is the cleansing agent 
I think this, is, this can be tricky to understand. But only Jesus' love can cleanse us from sin. For his love is holy, blameless, pure, sinless, and mighty. What if the problem that we have is that the only way to be delivered from our sinfulness is to be closer to pure love? That instead of being uh, overwhelmed by guilt and run in the opposite direction, that the only way that we can actually enjoy a relationship with God that's satisfying is to come closer. I think about, and I, I, I use the example so much just because it's so meaningful to me, I think about my uh, marriage to Debbie. Debbie has changed me more than anyone else in the face of the planet. Like, far above everybody else. What didn't change me is our wedding vows. That started something. But what changed me was living with her. And it's the relationship, not just signing a piece of paper, you know, I'm a Christian. That doesn't actually change you. What changes you is being in relationship. And when you experience being loved, being cared about, being in the center of another person's thoughts. It's overwhelming. Looking in their eyes when you hurt them. It's how you learn how to hate sin. Because you just don't want to do that to somebody who's loved you so well. I think about my family in the same way. They've just radically changed my life being in relationship with them. Now follow me on this. What if the reason why we struggle with sin is because we've not received the pure love that has been offered us through the work of Jesus Christ? What if it's the purity of love that actually conquers sin in us? You see, uh, and I, so, stabilized me super well. Uh, still a human. So, that love got me somewhere. Still not enough. The pure love of God is the ultimate transformation of the human heart. If I, okay, if I am purely loved, do I need to gossip anymore? Why would I need to gossip? I'm loved. I got nothing to prove. I don't have to look good in other people's eyes. I've been loved by God. And to know that love, it's, gossip is ridiculous. Judgmental. Why would I ever be judgmental of others? I know what it's like to experience being forgiven. I don't need to judge anybody else for their behavior. What about selfish ambition? What could be greater to achieve than a relationship with the living God? I've got nothing more to prove in this life. A 
holy love relationship with God is the radical transformation that every human heart needs. Um, a number of years ago, like a number of years ago, uh, there, was a, uh, there was a guy who we watched his testimony on VHS. Yes. Um, so we watched his testimony. His name was Ian McCormick, and it turns out that he married Debbie's uh, neighbor growing up. So it's a link, so it must be all true. Um, but it was, it was just fascinating. He was speaking at, uh, at a vineyard church in Langley, and we got a VHS copy of the, uh, of the church service. And we watched this video, I don't know how many times. And what it's about, it's about a guy who was not a Christian, and he got stung by, I think it was five box jellyfish, which is the most lethal, you know, poison that you can be um, stung with. And so he ended up dying. And in the process of dying, he came to Christ. But then he died for, they estimate, 12 to 15 minutes, and then came back to life. And so he tells the story of, um, you know, he's, he's, in, he's in pits of darkness. And he describes the terror and loneliness of being in that place. And, uh, and it's real, but he can't, you know, he tries to touch his body, but his hand goes straight through his head, you know? But he knows that he's alive. And he says, he remembers people saying, shut up. I'm not even saying anything. And they said, your thoughts are disturbing us. And he says, I've never felt such coldness and isolation as I did in that place. And then he says, I saw, you know, the, the typical, I saw light in a tunnel. And it was going up. And he says, and I, 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 he says, I felt myself being carried up this tunnel. And at the end was the presence of God. And he says, um, he says, you could see a form. You couldn't see his face. He says, because scripture tells us that we can't see his face and live. It's, it's, it's too magnificent. But he says, there was this form. And he says, I knew it was Jesus. And this form was pure light. And, and shooting off of this being was a, rain, was a rainbow of light just emanating off of him. He says, he was the most beautiful being that I've ever seen. And then the guilt came. And he says, I remember thinking, what am I doing here? I can't survive in the face of this much glory. And he would start to feel condemned. And then he says, shooting off of this off of Jesus would be a wave of love. And he would feel his, his condemnation lessening. And he goes, but you don't know all that I've done. Another wave of love. But I've dishonored you. Another wave of love. And he says, I was hit with wave after wave of the love of God. 
The presence of God changed a man. The, pre- the presence of God changed him. And so then Jesus speaks to him. Uh, and he says, uh, would you like to return? Would you like to go back to earth? And he says, nope. He goes, he says, I've traveled all around the world. And this is what my heart has longed for. I'm home. I never want to leave this place again. Thanks? Nope. I am here now forever. My heart is fully satisfied by a living relationship with the source of love. And then he says, um, Jesus moved. And you know how like he moves and then the light kind of catches up? You know, that's so cool. Anyways, it has nothing to do with the story, but I just think that's cool. Like it just, whoosh, you know. And so Jesus moves. The light kind of catches up and moves with him. And then in behind, he sees a picture of a bunch of people back on earth. And one of them is, a, is his, in, in, this, in this crowd, one of them is his mom. And he says, I, as far as his, his mother knows, he died not a Christian. He says, I can't do that to my mom. Um, but he says, all those other people, I don't, know, I don't even know who they are. He says, maybe they're your friends, but <laughs> they're not my friends. I don't know why I go back for them. But he understood later that God was commissioning him, get this, to take the presence that he was in in that moment and to take it back to earth and to be a minister of the gospel. That's just incredible. He says, if you go with me, I'll go back. But if you don't go with me, I can't leave this presence because I've tasted of the beauty of the Lord Jesus Christ and I never want to leave this place. What if our problem with sin is not so much about our willpower, not so much that we haven't got enough help from priests. What if our problem is we've not come close to the source of light and love? What if, what if it's that simple that this is where our salvation lies? We can pray a prayer of salvation and I love praying for people to come to Christ. But what saves is Jesus. What delivers us from sin is his love. And so if I'm tempted to sin, it means I've not experienced the love of God in its fullness, and I'm still tempted by something that is absurd in contrast to who he is. But the fact that I'm tempted is just yet another sign that I've not fully grabbed hold of the glory of God. And that I somehow, as I grab hold of that, this would fade away. Not, it, would, it, wouldn't, it wouldn't even be a temptation. It would be a disgust. Because I've now tasted a pure love. 
What if your salvation and mine is a relationship with God? And deliverance from sin is not a religious exercise. My concluding statement is, salvation is not a business transaction. It is communion. Here's my concern. Sometimes, the way that Christianity gets described is it gets described as most any other religion. And that is that there's a holy, otherwise known as ticked off, God, somewhere up very far away, and he's just angry. He is so angry, he says, I have been so disrespected, somebody's got to pay. Who's going to pay? My son will pay. And the misquotation of John 3.16, for God so hated the world that he killed his one and only son, is often how the salvation message is described. And this couldn't be further from the truth. For God so loved the world that he gave the one that he loves the most to absorb our sin, that we could be with him forever and Jesus could be exalted and he would have his bride pure, blameless, spotless. And it's to the glory of Jesus that he would express love to such an extent as dying on a cross. Please do not view holiness as a works righteousness program, even if you think that it's about being empowered by the Spirit to help. It's far more profound than you getting good, whatever that means, in some legalistic, perfectionistic way. No. It's experiencing the extravagant love of Jesus Christ and letting it hit your heart wave after wave after wave. And the worries and temptations of this world will seem insignificant in the light of his glory. So let me ask you then in closing, who or what do you use as mediators? What do you do when you don't want to face Jesus because you know you've done wrong? What do you use? How do you create a gap? How do you cope with your guilt? Do you blame? Do you distract? Do you try to be better this time? All of that gets removed when you experience the forgiveness, which is the deepest expression of love that you can experience through Jesus Christ.
through this series, I am falling in love with the idea of holiness. That there would be a God that is so pure, so good in the warmest of ways, that simply being in his presence heals me of my sinfulness. Isn't that incredible? That's incredible. Who wants to be on a works righteousness program when you've been given a priest, an eternal priest, who sacrificed himself that we could be with him forever? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your overwhelmingly beautiful response to our sinfulness. That you don't ask for us to perform some kind of religious duties. You don't, we don't have to prove it that we mean it. We don't have to lean on others in a way that actually separates us from coming to you and learning how to have a personal relationship with you. That you invite us to draw near, trusting that your nearness, a relationship with you, cleanses our very soul and liberates us from sinfulness. Oh, thank you for the perfect solution to the human predicament. And so we worship you today. We adore you. We celebrate your goodness. We hate sin. We run to your arms. Because you are our safe and saving place. Thank you, Jesus.